0: Good evening, Mosaic family. So glad that you've chosen to worship with us this Saturday evening. If you don't know who I am, that's okay because I haven't led at Mosaic in a while. But my name is Pat Anderson. I come to you from the Fellowship Rogers Sunday Morning Congregation, good friends with Kyle, and I'm glad to worship with you this evening. Would you stand with us? Let's praise the Lord together. Let us worship and bow down before the Lord, our Maker. Let's give Him all the praise. can have a seat and check out this video update.
1: Well, hello, fellowship. Uh, Matt Newman from Samaritan Springdale. Um, And this week we celebrated our one-year family reunion uh, from the opportunity to be a part of the replant, the revitalization at Samaritan in Springdale. And it has been such a privilege uh, to see God work in such beautiful and remarkable and unpolished clunky kinds of ways. And uh, to get to share with you just my deep affection and heart of gratitude um, for you, with you, it's such a privilege. Um, There's been a passage of scripture that these last several months have really meant a lot to me and it comes from Galatians 2 and it talks about Paul as he's uh, reflecting on the elders who are encouraging a mobilization of church planting um, all across the modern day world. And he talks about how, how Peter to the Jews and he, Paul, to the Gentiles. And he mentions uh, James and Cephas and Barnabas. And, and they say, just remember one thing, only one thing. And that only one thing is don't forget the poor. And, and that message has just been so instilled uh, on my heart, my team's heart, as we've looked at Springdale um, and that overlooked and that undervalued community, that neighborhood that we've been called Uh, to serve alongside and be with. One story just to share with you in celebration uh, is my good friend, Big Mike. He's six foot eight, we look eye to eye, and he's got a big personality. And and Big Mike has moved from East Arkansas, uh, coming out of a prison situation, coming out of homelessness, coming out of drugs, um, and and just a difficult situation, to now he has been sober. Uh, He has been a faithful member of the church. He has held a consistent job. Uh, he's about to move into permanent housing. He's developed friends and accountability. Uh, just the other day, he looked at me in the eye and said, "Matt, I've never had relationships like this. I've never had employers pursue me like this. Um, and you can just tell the work of God through the church and people's like Big Mike's life uh, is why we do what we do. Why the church doesn't just say come, but the church sends, the church goes. Um, and it's been such a privilege to see how Fellowship uh, hasn't forgotten the poor, how Samaritan has been on the front lines, the tip of the spear of just being servants, not in charitable ways, but in dignifying ways to the people, uh, to the relationships uh, in our neighborhood. So we are so grateful.
2: Well, good evening, Mosaic. It's good to be with you tonight. Uh, my name is Matt so I work with the kids here on the kids team. Uh, love to get to do that. Uh, that video is the last of three uh, that we've been just following up with congregations that Mosaic had a hand in planting. So uh, we started with Samaritan Rogers and then uh, the Benton Fellowship, Bentonville campus, and then this weekend the Samaritan Springdale campus. So if you don't know what's going on around here, ask somebody that's been here maybe a little longer than you, and we'd love to tell you the story of what God's been doing in our midst, as he sent people out from among us to other pockets and corners of Northwest Arkansas. So, uh, if you're uh, a first timer here, I just want to say we're glad you're here. Uh, we don't want to miss that you're here. And so, uh, a couple of ways to get on our radar. One would just be elbow somebody next to you and say, "Hey, this is my first time," and uh, make them buy you dinner after service. That's a great way to get to know somebody. Uh, if that is way outside your uh, comfort zone, uh, you can text or you can visit somebody in the foyer or you can jump on the website and, and fill out a, uh, a new I'm um, new card. And so uh, you can find all the info you're going to need though at the Mosaic news page. That's mosaicnwa.org slash news. It's the only website page on the net on the web that you need to know for any news there. A couple things that I do want to draw your attention to that you can find extra information about there. The first is uh, divorce care is launching soon. It's the uh, the early September date is the the kind of kickoff of that. But uh, if you are walking through or have have recently walked through a separation or divorce and you're just needing a community of people that will get it, kind of get it past that first layer and uh, help walk you through uh, the next phase of this uh, healing process, that's uh, a great ministry. It's open to you. Um, please don't be shy about jumping in there. Uh, the second is uh, we, uh, we're we in the season of trying to uh, launch and grow together. It has kind of been this driving thought out in front of us. And one of the ways that you can can jump in is uh, just jumping into a community group. Um, If you don't know how to get connected to one, an easy way to do so is get on the web and tell us you want to get connected or head out to the foyer to the community board and tell somebody there and we'll get you get the ball rolling. Um, A really easy uh, onboarding ramp is uh, the Discover class, which I'll tell you a bit more about in a second. And finally, uh, there are still spots for uh, leadership. So if you just feel uh, the desire to uh, step out in faith and trust that uh, God's going to bring people around you uh, that are looking to be Shepherded, and that you said you feel like maybe you're approaching the season where that's that's uh, the call on your life. Let's uh, let's do that uh, together, and you can you can tell somebody out in the uh, community booth out there about that. Uh, let's jump back to Discover though for a second. Uh, Discover is a seven-week class. And it's really going to model for you what small groups around here look like. It's going to answer all the big questions like who is uh, fellowship. Uh, it's going to help you meet staff or meet other people in the congregation. Uh, it's really going to help you launch uh, a small group at the end of that seven weeks. So uh, that is by far the the easiest bar of entry, the, the lowest stepping over bar. It's practically laying on the ground. So sign up for that one if you want to get connected at all. Uh, and then the last um, Maybe even a lower bar than that uh, is a single weekend commitment. Uh, if you want to come camping with me, uh, I checked. I, I I bought sixteen sites at Prairie Creek. Uh, the The planning is very low, but the expectation of time to hang out is very high. So uh, we're gonna make dinner Friday night together, and then just play all day Saturday. Uh, maybe you don't want to sleep in a tent or in an RV, and you just want to come play on Saturday. Totally fine too. We're we're, we're just gonna play together. So. I'm excited to hang out with you, and I hope that's a selling point to hang out with other people. It's not just me at this point. There's about uh, seven or eight other people that have signed up as well. So uh, it's it's kind of already uh, swelling into a little fun shindig. So uh, I want to, um, I think I have the time to say it. I found myself very contemplative lately. Um, I went to Philadelphia last weekend to see my favorite band play their final two shows. Uh, my 11-year-old had a birthday. And my five-year-old had a wicked crash where he had a chunk of wood stab into his arm and they were at the doctor for a while. Just a weird, like, life is both so excellent and also really fragile. And for whatever reason, being in this place with you sometimes feels like another Saturday, kind of this rote experience of we're here again, we're doing it again. But I think just the way that I've been primed in the last week and a half with all these momentous things for me I'm realizing that it's a really special thing to get to be in here with y'all and that this might be the last time that this specific group does this together. There's, you know, that life changes and people leave in the area and all those things. So I just, I want us to come with an expectation of meeting God and meeting one another tonight. And so can I just pray to that end as we continue our worship service together? God, you are just good. And uh, the twists and turns of life are no surprise to you. Um, you are not surprised by the passing of days and years, and uh, and yet they still catch us off guard. Um, we still um, can either be numbed by their continual passing into missing the special moment that this day is, um, or we can uh, get paralyzed by all of the things in a moment and miss uh, just your steady hand out over it day in and day out. And so we are just a humbled group of people that want to love you and love each other better. And we're here tonight with that expectation that this is an opportunity to do so. So would you help us do that tonight, Lord? We pray in your name, amen.
0: Would you stand with us once again? Let's continue to sing of his goodness, his faithfulness. Five is goodness together. How sweet it is to be in the house of the Lord, to sing of his goodness together, and to hear the choir of voices testifying that together. This evening, we have the opportunity to give back to the Lord all that he has given us. And so one thing that we're doing at Mosaic in the season is praying a prayer over our offering together. So I invite you to pray this prayer with us this evening. It'll be on the screen O Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiply the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give and match your great gift to us, your Son and your Spirit. With hearts of gratitude for all he has done for us, all oh, my words for sure. I've got nothing new. How could I? I could sing these songs as I often do. Every song. Of our hearts, we see. To come on, my
3: soul. Don't you get shy on me, lift up your soul. Cause you got a lion inside of For a heart singing, hallelujah, hallelujah.
4: Hi, everyone. I'm Ted Leonard from the Core Training and <clears throat> Training Center. <clears throat> Tonight's passage is Philippians 1. 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
5: You all can take a seat. Well, hey, welcome. My name is Nick. Um, I get to serve here at Fellowship Mosaic on the teaching team. Uh, it's been a joy the last few weeks just to be walking through, being led by Colin and Kyle, and just who we are as a church and, and what it looks like for us to grow together through a vision of life in community together, gathering in relationships to grow, and then a life worshiping together on this gathering here on Saturday nights, and, and that is our vision, that we, we would live our church life together, both in this large group worship gathering to get equipped and trained, and then in homes, in the places where we live, work, and play throughout the week. And so as we kind of wrap up this, this launch series for the fall, um, we're taking one last look at this passage in Acts chapter 2, but there's, there's a question that this passage raises for me that, that I want to dive into and try to process a little bit this week. So take a look at, at Acts chapter two, verse 32, or verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It's This word devoted is this thing that you cling to, the thing that you say you are committed to and you're not gonna let go of. And their first commitment was to the apostles' teaching and to praying together. They became Students of the scriptures. Now, if if you've grown up anywhere around any kind of church setting, that might seem like a fairly unimpressive statement. But here's what's really interesting about the ancient world that is unheard of for a religious gathering. See, in the ancient Roman context, people didn't study their scriptures. You know who studied the scriptures? Only the priests. The idea of how religion worked is you had a priest who was supposed to be an expert. This is both for the Jewish world and for the Greco-Roman world. That you had priests and religious teachers who were supposed to be experts on the scriptures or whatever their sacred text was. And they offered the sacrifices. And the common people came to the temple to let the priests do the work of religion for them. But something interesting started happening with the early church. Uh, The early apostles gathered people around and said, hey, let's all look at this together. You you need to know what this says. In fact, one uh, one non-believing commentator looking at the church at the time looked at them and said, they are just, it is so odd. They have all the common people obsessed with learning philosophy. Philosophy was their word for thinking about religion and how you do ethics. And they had commoners who were becoming philosophers, is the way it looked to the Roman world. This was out of step with everything they did. And somehow this movement that started with a bunch of nerds reading ancient texts turned into a people who had everything in common and loved each other really, really well. Now, I don't know what kind of academic learning settings you've been in, but that connection does not seem to be one-to-one in the ones, places I've been. In fact, that leads me to a prayer that Paul prays for the church in Philippians that I want to really anchor in on tonight a little bit that continues this thought. When Paul is thinking about what he wants for the Philippians, we often, when, we, when we're reading through these letters, Paul writes, he has these moments that he prays that it's really easy to skip over them. But I think it's important to notice when we see Paul's prayer to think of what he desired the church to be. This is the, the prayer that Ted just read from Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. I might jump there with me if you will. Look at what Paul prayed for the Philippian church. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayer is that the Philippian church would have an explosive kind of love. He says, I want it to abound. I want it to just be just beyond what you can contain, that you'll have so much love that it'll spill out onto those around you. And, and how is that supposed to happen, Paul says? It's going to happen from knowledge and depth of insight. Uh, the word knowledge speaks to just what we'd expect to be things that you're going to know. And depth of insight speaks particularly to kind of practical, ethical knowledge that you have insights on right and wrong in certain situations. That somehow, both what we see pictured in Acts and what Paul is praying for here in Philippians is that when the people of God grow in knowledge, that will result in a growth in love. Now, how many of you in here would say that from what you understand of the learning process in America today that growing educated and more knowledgeable leads directly to a growth in love for people and kindness and generosity. Why are you chuckling? In fact, we have a phrase that we talk about when we try to describe this apparent disconnect between learning and loving. We talk about, we say there's head knowledge and there's heart knowledge. Anybody heard this before? Yeah, we talk about head knowledge versus heart knowledge. And people often describe... Um, things that give you head knowledge as in some way being kind of worthless for heart experiences, for love. In fact, the way most of us would describe it, if we were to picture it, we'd picture it something like this, that there's a person who needs to know, and there's two kinds of things they need to know. They need to know certain kinds of head truth and then certain kinds of heart truth. In fact, I had a conversation that stuck with me one time and I was talking about the need for the the church to grow in the depth of their theology, that we need to understand who God is as Trinity, what it means that Jesus was made incarnate and walked among us, that he died for our sins and rose again. And the person responded, Nick, our people don't need more theology. They need to know how to have their marriages healed. That was a profound and disturbing statement for me to hear. Our people don't need to know more about who God is and what he's done. Rather, they need something that's going to help them with their marriage. What's the implication there? Knowing about God and what he's done doesn't speak to our relationships and our everyday lives and what's going on. And so it leads to this idea that there's this theology stuff that's really good for your head and then something else that's good for your heart. Now, I'm actually experientially going to agree that many of us have had the experience, in fact, it's a big part of my story, of learning a whole lot about God that doesn't touch our relational experiences. My guess is a lot of us in here can relate to that. But I don't think the answer is that we need a different thing to know. I don't think there are two kinds of knowledges. In fact, I think it is rather that there are two different ways of knowing. So then instead of this picture where there's one person who needs to know two different kinds of things, I think we have a knower who has this information that they're gonna learn and know and they need to have an experience where that knowledge begins to fill them. That knowledge has to completely cover all that they are. That knowledge has to move past some only abstract information and begin to get inside and connect with their life. The answer is not that to overcome my shame, I need to know something other than that Jesus died for my sins. It's that somehow the truth that Jesus died for my sins has to actually hit my shame. A connection has to take place in there in some way. So how does that happen? There's actually a very ancient concept and practice that fills the scriptures, and it's the concept of meditation. You see it throughout the scriptures, this call to meditate. And I know in, in my life, that is one of the, the key things that was missing in my experience of what it looked like to know God and let that change me. I'm just gonna do a quick tour of a few different places so you can get a sense of how how frequent this is in the scriptures. Joshua, so Joshua is being challenged to lead the people of Israel into the promised land and go to war. And he needs courage, right? He needs courage to go to war. He needs strength of leadership to lead an army. And of all the things that Joshua might need to know, what do you think it's gonna take for him to be able to lead the people of Israel? Look at what he's told Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything in it. God's command to Joshua is that you need to just be saturated with the word of God. Further, look at what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 1. How to be a person of character and integrity. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither Whatever they do prospers. See, the tree planted by a stream of water is a tree that doesn't change with the seasons because they have a ready supply of life. So how do you become that kind of person who is anchored and bears fruit through all the different kinds of seasons? You meditate on the word of God. And and he, he describes, look at that word, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Isn't that an interesting idea? What would it take to actually delight in the scriptures? to take joy in the scriptures. I don't know about you, but if I'm being really honest, most times that I try to read the Bible, it is labor, it is work, it is discipline, and it is watching the clock to make sure I put in the time that I'm supposed to put in, and then by the time I'm through my first cup of coffee, I've forgotten completely what it said. I'm gonna keep making the case. Uh, Let's move forward to the book of Romans. Romans. This is Paul speaking, and he's going to describe this process using some slightly different language. In Romans 12, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So the command is, I want you to give yourself to God, give your entire life to him, and this is how it's going to happen. In verse 2, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of of your mind. Something inside of you has to change. And then, he says, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, for, for so much of my, I'm not even gonna tell that yet. We got one more verse, and then I'm gonna tell you how I got it wrong. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter four. In Ephesians four, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I heard this verse so many times growing up. And if, you, if anyone were to ask me what it says, I could have told you really quickly, put off the old person and put on the new. You gotta put off an old way of living and you gotta take on a new way of living. And I never paid attention to the part in the middle that tells you what you actually have to do to be able to do that. What has to happen so that you can leave behind an old way of living? You have to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And for so much of my life, my spirituality looked like this. Read the Bible. Find out what it says. I now know what God expects expects me to do and how he expects me to live. Now I'm gonna go live it. I'm gonna go do it. And I was really good at that kind of study. I would make my observations about what the text said. I would interpret it. I would write out an application. I would have a plan for how I was gonna do it this week. And I would even have an accountability group that I would text my friends and tell them, this is what I'm gonna do of obedience this week. And over and over again, this pattern would play out where I read what God's word said, I understood it, and I went and tried to do it. And there was this incredible frustration with that process. Because the whole time, something, nothing was changing inside of me. Even though I had a very, I think, a sincere desire to please God, I really was taking my direction for what was good and what was right. But I found myself powerless to do it. Which meant that on my best days, I felt a little bit like a fraud. Because I knew that all the darkness was still there. And on my worst days, I just felt crippled with shame. And none of those felt very good. Dallas Willard, one teacher of meditation and practices in the Christian faith, he poses this thought in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Much time is spent among Christians trying to smooth over hurt feelings and even deep wounds, given and received, and to get people to stop being angry, retaliatory and unforgiving. But suppose instead we devoted our time to inspiring and enabling Christians and others to be people who are not offended and are not angry and who are forgiving as a matter of course. See, what I wanted were really good techniques to behave differently. And what Jesus wants is actually to change me. He wants to transform me and you to be more like him so that we, we develop something that looks like our, the phrase we use is second nature our nature is to behave one way in our brokenness but Christ wants to form in us a second nature and for that to happen the truths of the scriptures have to be allowed to get inside and begin to connect with us so practically how does that happen there are books upon books and practices upon practices of meditation and how it works. I'm going to share with you one thing tonight that has been really powerful for me and really helpful and it comes from like the nerdiest of places, a philosopher at Yale that I just think is really cool named John Frame. And John Frame was trying to make sense of like human thought and truth and all these things and how they all fit together. And he was reading all these different philosophers and He felt like all of them had some decent insights on truth and yet they all thought the others were wrong. And what he was seeking after was some way to take the best insights of all these people on truth and show how they work together. And as a believer, he thought the answer is only going to happen in Christ. And so this is what he proposed. He proposed that there are actually three perspectives on truth that are always going on in any situation we're dealing with. One of them, I changed his language a little bit because his language was super philosophical and not fun. So we want some easier terms here. One of them is the standard. This is God's standard, God's word that speaks over any situation, that shows right and wrong, good and beautiful from God's perspective. This is the standard. But there's also always the situation, the facts of what are happening on the ground, the practical realities that you're living in, what's happening in your life. And then there's the subjective. What's going on inside your heart? What are the emotions, the thoughts, and the motives? And he said, if you look at all of the battles about truth that are out there, almost every camp wants to pick one of the three points on the triangle and say that's the only thing that matters. Have You ever seen that happen? Picture what that would look like. Like imagine the person who says the only thing that matters is God's word. I mean, that sounds pretty good, right? Shouldn't that, that, shouldn't that person be right? But What would it look like to be the kind of person who says all that matters is God's word, what you're going through and what you're experiencing is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is God's word and what you're feeling, what your motives are, I don't care. This is truth. You know what we call that person? Jesus ran into him a lot. Those were the Pharisees. Experts in what God's word said but zero ability to connect God's word to what people were going through and what they were feeling. Now, there's this trend that I'm seeing right now of this huge war. Um, The way it gets phrased is the war between facts and feelings. There's actually a very crude bumper sticker going on right now that tells people what they can do with their feelings. And there is this idea that somehow I'm being more mature and rational if I pretend that feelings don't matter. Have you ever met the person who thinks they don't have emotions? This was me for the first 30 years of my life, okay? Have you you ever seen this person who, they'll walk into a room, red faced, screaming at everyone, and you'll say, hey, what's wrong, why are you so upset? I'm not upset, really, that's amazing. You see, the irony about someone who pretends they don't have emotions and that they don't feel anything is they're going to be more controlled by their emotions than anyone else. If they're pretending it's not there, if they're blind to what's going on inside their own heart, they have zero ability to respond in a healthy way to what they're feeling. the things that people are feeling are absolutely real and it's an important part of our experience of the truth. Just like the facts of the situation are and just like the things that God says about the situation. They all have to have their day at the table. The key is to make sure that they all stay in their proper place at the table. Things break when I start thinking what I'm feeling right now tells me what is right and wrong. What I'm feeling right now tells me everything I need to know about the situation in the world. Or, because this is right or wrong, you can't be feeling what you think you're feeling right now. The reality is all of these three perspectives are real and they're what's happening. And things break when we allow them to distort the other two perspectives of what's happening. I had a fantastic experience of this this week. I had something uh, that had broken in my house. And so I was late at night. We also have our AC broken right now. So I was working on another broken thing while it was 80 degrees in our house. And I start working to fix this thing. And as I'm working, it goes wrongly and I actually break it even worse. So that what should have been a repair has now become a replacement. And I just, I mean, it was, I haven't felt this kind of rage Boiling up in me in a really long time. And I was like, I just threw the hammer down I was working with and I just sat there for a minute. And as I'm boiling with rage, I remember a fight that I had had with Cassie. And I remember that I was kind of frustrated with her too. And as this is starting to boil, I actually remembered this point in the sermon that I was prepping. And this little voice in my head said, Nick. The anger you're feeling about this busted thing has nothing to do with your anger with Cassie and I told that voice to shut up (laughs) and I got up and I walked in the living room where Cassie was sitting sweetly and innocently and I plopped myself down in the fireplace and I just unloaded like a four-year-old with a tantrum and Cassie listened and she said, I understand how frustrating that would be and it sounds like you're blaming me and I don't think I have anything to do with this. and being the wise and godly man I am, I dug my heels in for three more hours. (laughs) What was going on? In that moment, I was letting... Was my anger real and justified? Yeah, it's a really frustrating thing to put a lot of work in something and it just break. Of course. Like, I don't think there was anything unreasonable about me feeling really angry and frustrated in that moment. The mistake where things got broken and twisted is when I let my anger tell me what was true about everything else. And I let that start to drive. Now, I told you there's actually gonna be something helpful coming. It's here. It's a really simple practice because I believe where transformation happens is when we actually let these three perspectives meet each other in an honest way and we let them each have their day. Now I am a terrible journaler. Journaling feels like the hardest discipline in the world for me. And so usually all I have the attention to do is write down three questions with three bullet point answers. Usually I'm not even that disciplined, I just think about it and pray about it. But these three questions coming from these three perspectives have been so helpful for me to begin to let the truth of God's word touch the other areas of my life. And so I just ask three questions, I ask, what actually happened? What are the facts of the situation? And then, what do I feel about this situation? And then finally, what does God say about this situation? It's really simple work. But can you imagine what would have happened if I had paused to do this when I was pouting in our laundry room floor? Now, the order these questions come in it's probably going to depend on the situation, right? So if I'm sitting down to read God's word first thing in the morning, fortunately, most of the time, I haven't gotten really angry about anything yet. And so I'm probably going to start with the question, what does God's word say? I'm reading the scripture. I'm, I'm looking at what God's word is saying. And then I want to ask the question, what's going on in my world? What's going on in my life? And what, do I, what am I feeling about this? And the whole time I'm asking these questions, I'm asking these questions in prayer. God, help me see what's, what, what's going on in my world right now. What's going on in my life and my experience? What's going on at work? And when I describe what's happening, I'm actually trying to leave all of my emotional assessments of the situation to the side. So what happened? We were in a meeting. I shared an idea. Everyone at the meeting thought it was a joke, and they laughed, and they moved on, not realizing it was a sincere suggestion. What did I feel? I felt angry and ashamed, and I pouted in the corner for five minutes and didn't speak. Okay, so God, what do you have to say about this situation? I had another situation this week where I was, I was driving home and I just had, a, I had something stuck in my head that I was feeling anxious about. And that anxiety came with some shame. And I kind of felt it welling up. And so as I'm driving, I ask these three questions. But because what was like had my attention at that moment was the feeling. So I just, as I'm driving, I start breathing. And I say, what am I feeling right now? And I start talking to the Lord, and I just start naming the emotions. I'm feeling this, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling this. And then I just start recounting my day. What happened? When did these feelings start? And I just start trying to name what it was. And there were a couple of times that as I was describing what happened, I realized I was describing it in a distorted way. And I was like, no, that's, that's not actually what happened. And I just tried to be really honest about what actually happened. And then I started asking the Lord, Lord, what do you say about this? What's true and what's real from your perspective? Now, most of the time, this isn't going to change you overnight. In fact, so many times that we try to enter into this practice of being honest with the Lord about what we're feeling and about what's happening and asking God's word to speak into it, it's still going to go really badly for us. But every time we do that, every time we make the choice to read the Bible, to read God's word and pray and connect it to our lives or from the other direction to experience something and turn to God's word for perspective, we're actually letting our minds be rerouted. We're letting something transform inside of us so that a second nature starts to happen so that when those experiences come, when those emotions flare up, when the hurt hits us, we're actually building some new reflexes to learn to talk to God about what's going on inside of us, to learn to talk to God about the situation and begin to say, God, what, what do you say to this? And how, how can I be changed in this moment? And over time, we're gonna become different people. So I wanna talk a little bit about how we are gonna grow in knowledge this fall But I want to set the challenge in front of us that as we study God's word, as we become the little philosopher Christians that are studying our texts, that we'll be people who engage it with our whole person. That we're not studying some abstract ideas that never touch our lived experiences of what we're walking through and what we're feeling every day. Because we don't have to choose between them. We don't have to choose between God's perspective on truth and being honest about what I'm feeling. Instead, we want to bring the two together. And let God's truth shine light on what we're experiencing and begin to transform that. So this fall, we're going to be studying the book of Ephesians, which I am just thrilled about. The book of Ephesians, um, some people call it just the masterpiece of Paul's writing. Um, Paul had written all these letters that were facing certain situations and certain challenges. But with Ephesians, Paul is in prison. He's not going anywhere for a while. And he sits down and he writes what I believe is the summary of his theology the big picture understanding of what Paul saw for the church and what Christ has done in the church. This town, Ephesus, it was one of the most important cities in the ancient world. Um, and we're, as, we, as we walk through this book, as we look at this city of, um, of Ephesus and this letter written to them, we've got a study guide that I want to invite all of you to grab. We've got them outside. They're 10 bucks just to cover printing costs. If the money's an issue, please let us know. Um, but I encourage you, grab this book. It's got some tools to help you study through it. But as we look at this at this book of Ephesians, I think we want to know just a little bit. I'm going to give you a brief introduction to what's going on in this city. It's one of the most important cities in the world. It was the gateway to Rome and everything in the West. It exists in what is modern-day Turkey. It was a major trading route, but what Ephesus was most famous for was this temple. It's a temple to the goddess Artemis. Um, this is a, um, It's ruins now. This is a reconstruction of what it would have looked like. It was massive. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People would come from all over the world to come to the temple of Artemis and be blessed by the goddess. And there was an entire market around this temple. One of the driving economies was building these little Artemis statues, these little Artemis figurines. And the idea was you would come to the temple where the goddess herself dwelled and blessed everyone. And then you would leave the temple and you would buy one of these figurines. And if you bought a figurine from the temple at Artemis, Artemis would keep an eye on you as you left. And you would set that little figure up in your home and the goddess would continue to bless your home and protect you. And this was an area in a culture that was terrified of magic. There were curses all over the place of people trying to curse each other's business and take each other down. But if you got this statue of Artemis from the temple of Artemis and you took it home, then Artemis would guard your home. It's a little bit like going to Disney World and bringing the ears back so you can bring the magic home. They were bringing the magic of Artemis back to their house. Now, When Paul showed up at Ephesus, we read out in the book of Acts, and he preaches about a Lord Jesus who rose from the dead and is now sitting on a throne above all gods and above all angels and all spiritual powers, and he can protect you from anything, and he doesn't live in a temple made by hands, and you don't need a little statue to have his attention. In fact, his eyes are on everyone who believed in him. You know what happened? A riot broke out. The people who made these statues said, this man Paul is destroying our city. And it happened in this amphitheater right here. They gathered and they were just screaming about what Jesus was doing because the power of Jesus was upending the cultural values of Ephesus and it was threatening everything they held dear. And so years later, Paul's in prison and he writes to this church at Ephesus and it's so interesting the things he wants to remind them of. He said, hey, don't forget that Jesus is risen above every power and he's actually seated you there with him. And hey, did you know that the people of the church actually are the temple of Christ? That's what Paul says in, Ephesus, in the letter to the Ephesians. That these are the people who are living in the shadow of the most wonderful temple on earth. And he says, no, 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 you are the temple of the living God, not that big pile of stones up the hill. And if we know that's true, that we are the place where Jesus dwells, that changes everything about our lives. And this little verse in chapter 3, I think, of Ephesians, I think is in many ways kind of a banner statement of what Paul's saying. He's talking about what Jesus is up to in Paul's life and in the church. He says, his intent was that now, through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't miss that. These are the people who are terrified of all these angelic beings and Paul says that God is teaching them a lesson through what happens in your church when you just trust Jesus and walk with him. He's showing them the meaning of power and the meaning of Christ's lordship. It's an incredible vision for what the church should and could be. So I invite you to jump in with us as we study Ephesians, as we preach it here together, as we study it in our small groups, and and be thinking through, asking those questions, how does this truth connect with the lives that we're living every day? The second opportunity we have that I'm really excited about, I want to invite my friend Ted back up here. Um, I am so blessed by Ted Leonard joining our team. Uh, He joins the training center team and is over... Core training, and uh, core training is a set of of the four core classes that that, that we desire everyone at Fellowship um, to get to jump in and be trained in. And Ted and I uh, are going to be co-teaching Panorama of the Bible this fall. So it's going to be at five o'clock, right across the hall. We're going to go Genesis to Revelation to the whole story of the Bible. And uh, Ted, tell me a little bit about just who you are and how you got to be here.
4: Yeah, thanks, Nick. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm the new core training team leader in the training center. Excited to be here and excited about Panorama. My wife and I, Suzanne, we have four daughters, and we've been living in Springfield, Missouri for the last 31 years. I've had a medical practice. And when my youngest daughter graduated high school a few years ago, my wife gave me the green light to go to seminary. So three years ago, I enrolled in seminary back in school, and I'm starting my last year. Get that picture. Medical
5: doctor, medical practice, <clears throat> decided to also go to seminary. Keep going.
4: Yeah, I just, I just love learning theology, and I love panorama that you're talking about. It has made such a difference in my personal life. I think all my life I've, I've studied depth of Scripture, but not necessarily what Robert calls the breadth of Scripture, all the way from Genesis to Revelations. And I wanted to be able to think my way through the scriptures. And after taking Panorama for the first time about 10 or 12 years ago, I took it again and again and again, and I started teaching it in Springfield. And now here, I just love the idea of us taking it together. It was such
5: a blessing. We, we were looking for who was going to lead this core training at Fellowship, and we were praying through that. And Ted had been, catch that, teaching Panorama curriculum in his church in Springfield. And then he calls and says, hey, I'm going to be moving to, to the Bentonville area and just want to know how I can jump in and bless fellowship. And it was such an answer to prayer to have him join our team. So I, I'm excited. Um, what do you love about Panorama? What, if you were to tell people about why, why this is important for them, why it would be valuable for their time.
4: Yeah, it helps you to organize your thoughts as you go through the scripture. For example, Ephesians, you can think through what movement it is. And Panorama is divided into 12 movements. For example, the first movement is called the Prologue. It's kind of an introduction to Scripture, Genesis 1 through 11. And we have some kind of a timeline of creation, fall, flood, tower. So you can begin to grow your knowledge in the events and people and timing of the Scriptures. And then when you think about Ephesians, know right where to put it in the whole story of the scriptures.
5: Because in Ephesians, it talks about how everything from the entire story has all been leading to this moment in Jesus. And so, Panorama, we're going to see that story comes together. Ted, thanks. Yeah. I appreciate you. Thank you. So, hey, if you want to sign up, we're going to start September 10th, 5 o'clock, right across the hall. If you go to mosaicnwa.org uh, slash news, you can sign up for Panorama right now, Panorama right now. I'd love you to join us. And our, our prayer through all these studies, the women's studies uh, that... that, that um, Uh, they talked about last week and everything else that's going on. The goal of all of it is that we would not just fill our heads with interesting information, that we would gain a better picture of who God is and what he's done so it'll transform our lives and that that would lead us to be the kind of church that loves well, that we would be the kind of transformed church that serves, loves, and plays well together to the glory of God. So our prayer for Mosaic this fall is the same prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians. So before we sing to the Lord a little bit more, I'd like to pray it over us tonight. This is my prayer, that your love, Mosaic, may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God Amen
0: Would you stand with us once again let's sing this truth that we belong to Christ Jesus our Lord I don't belong to
3: Treasures that don't satisfy Power and pleasures that always run dry But I belong to Christ
0: I don't belong to a
3: place
0: Value defined
3: by this world I belong to cry. Sing this together.
0: prayer is that we will learn how to live, how to grow, and how to serve as the body of Christ here at Fellowship Mosaic. So glad that you chose to worship with us tonight. Our prayer team will be available up front if you'd like prayer this evening, but we close our service with this benediction together. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's leave with gratitude. Have a great week.